Today I'm going to wrap up my series on the two kingdoms, the cross and the sword kingdom. And no one believes me. But I am. I mean it this time. This is it. Uh, Here's the deal. Um, As I mentioned in previous weeks, uh, I have never done a series that has gotten this much response, uh, both uh, favorably and critically, and passion on both sides of it. And I think that's an okay thing. I I invite all of that. But a number of questions have been raised that I haven't had a chance to address or didn't address adequately. And so I thought the best way to wrap up this series would be to go to some of the questions that have been asked and answer them. Uh, So this message will be kind of a teaching time more than a preaching time where I just want us to think through the five most frequently asked questions from people uh, from Woodland Hills about this series. Some of it's stuff I touched on, but... Clearly, there wasn't clarity on it, and so I thought it'd be a good way to wrap this all together. I want to entitle this message, um, In But Not Of the World. We're in the world, but not of the world, because almost all the questions arise from the fact that we are in the world, but not of the world, and we've got to live in tension with those two things. Questions about the two kingdoms. I want to, just to get us started, read from John chapter 17 where the Lord says this in a prayer that he is making to the Father. Father, I'm not asking you, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I am asking you to protect them from the evil one while they're in the world. Sometimes we'd like to be taken out of the world, but we're here, and as long as we're here, there's a job to do. We are in the world. We're not to remove ourselves from the world. You can't be leavened to the world. You can't be salt to the world if you're completely isolated from the world. Then Jesus says, they do not belong to the world. They're not of the world, just as I do not belong to the world. We are to be distinct from the world in exactly the same way that Jesus is distinct from the world. And so the motif that has been running throughout all of these uh, messages the last five weeks has been the need, the urgency, especially in, in this time and place, in this culture at this moment, There's an urgency to keep the kingdom of God holy, as Jesus is holy. uh, The word holy means separate, distinct. To keep the kingdom of God and our way of living out the kingdom of God distinct from all ways of doing the kingdom of the world. It's urgent at this time and place because there's a whole lot of fusion and polluting of the kingdom of God with thinking from the kingdom of the world. And that's what's been driving this whole message. I want to pray for the message. And could I get some people around the auditorium who will be my intercessors while I'm preaching this message? Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Our Heavenly Dad, we once again ask you, God, to give us the vision for the kingdom. To see it in its full beauty, in its radicalness, in its distinctness, and to keep that pure. Guard us from the evil one. Guard us from the world. And, and guard us and keep us from falling into simply religious versions of the kingdom of the world. But help us to be your kingdom people, a peculiar people, a distinct people who love like you love, who look like you, and make the impact that you made in the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Five questions. And they really encompass a number of other questions. I'm just kind of grouping these into five categories. Question number one. Sounds like David Letterman. Question number one. I got this a lot. Are you saying that all Christians should be pacifists? 
And by the way, if you haven't been here for this series, some of this might be a little bit new to you, but I encourage you just to hang in there. You'll get the gist of what we're talking about. The word pacifist is, refers to one who is passive or, or one who never be, who believes you. it's always wrong to resort to violence. And since we've been saying that the kingdom of God is by definition a coming under kingdom, does that mean that all Christians should be pacifists? And some have wondered, if I am saying that, is this to say that Christians should never participate in government or in the military since they, by definition, have to use power over and sometimes they have to use force to do it? What is the Christian to say about that? And after every question, I'm going to give a passage for us to think about while I'm answering the question. And so I want to highlight Romans chapter 13, where Paul says that government is God's servant for good. The authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the, wrong, on the wrongdoer. Now, Paul is not here, a few preliminary words. Paul is not here saying that, as a matter of fact, all kingdoms do this. All kingdoms execute their authority for the good. There are some incredibly corrupt kingdoms that don't do that at all. But what Paul is saying is this. In God's mind, God's ideal for the kingdoms of this world is to carry this sword, uh, to carry the sword, to wield this authority, to preserve law and order in the world. In a fallen world, you need that. You need law and order and, 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 and threats. We also know, as we've shown uh, several times in the last several weeks, that it's also true that all the kingdoms of this world, and some people have had trouble believing this, but it's right there in the Word of God as clear as can be. All the kingdoms of this world are to some degree at least polluted by uh, demonic influences. For all the kingdoms of the world, it says in Luke 4, are owned by Satan. He controls all the world, 1 John 5, 19. He is the principality and power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. He is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. So all the kingdoms of this world, by virtue of being power over, are under to some degree at least, not all of them are equally under the same degree, but, but under some degree of demonic influence. There's evil and corruption in there. Still... What this passage tells us is that insofar as they do what God intends them to do, they're good. They preserve law and order. And the question that people who are in the world but not of the world have to ask is this. How do we, or is it possible to wear both hats? Is it possible both to be in this good but kingdom of the world thing while also being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Jesus tells us that we're to turn the other cheek, lay down our life for others, bless those who persecute us, uh, to ascribe worth to others at cost to ourselves. That's the defining characteristic of the kingdom of God person. In the world, however, you can't do that, and God doesn't expect them to do that. That's why they have the sword. Kingdoms of the world can't turn the other cheek. They can't bless those who are persecuting them. They can't bless those who are abusing them. They fight for themselves. That's what they do. So, can we live in both kingdoms? Can we participate in both kingdoms? The, the Bible does not specifically address this question, and so right off the bat we've got to say we need to cut each other grace to disagree. But I'll give you my right opinion uh, on this whole thing. Here's the thing. Insofar as the kingdoms of this world carry out justice, preserve law and order. They do a good thing. It's just not a Christian thing. 
And so it seems to me that it is possible for a kingdom of God person to participate in that good thing so long as they realize that in doing that good thing, they're not doing a Christian thing. Think of it like wearing two different hats. And you're going to have to have your thinking caps on for this whole message. This is a teaching time. Think about it as wearing uh, two hats. Uh, a, a Christian decides to join the police force, force. That's a noble occupation. But as a policeman, they may have to shoot somebody, somebody who's, who possibly will kill other people. They may have to kill somebody. And insofar as they're carrying out law and order, preserving law and order, they're doing a good thing. But they just have to realize that they're not doing a Christian thing because they're doing a good thing. In other words, if you shoot somebody, and as a just thing, do it in the name of the law. Don't do it in the name of Jesus Christ. By definition, you can't shoot somebody in the name of Jesus Christ, but by definition, you can shoot somebody in the name of the law. And it feels a little bit schizophrenic, perhaps, but that's the kind of ambiguity we got to live in when we're in the world, but we're not of the world. There's, there's two different roles that we play. And so I believe that it is possible for a kingdom person to participate in government where they might have to exact laws that will result in, in people being punished and executed or whatnot in, 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 in the police forth, forth, force and even in the military, so long as they understand that they're not distinctly representing the kingdom of God in the process of doing that. But just because it's not the kingdom of God doesn't mean that it's against the kingdom of God. It just means it's not the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of this world. Now, things get a little bit stickier when we get to the military. Because if you join the military and are, and, and, and are on the front lines, and there's a lot of roles you can play in the military where you don't have to do that. But if you are going to be in the military and on the front lines, you have to know that you might have to shoot somebody for no other reason than that your officer said to shoot them. And that means you have to trust that they are carrying out, that your government is carrying out necessary law and order in the process of being involved in this war. And so if you have that kind of trust, then it's consistent for you to do that. If you don't have that kind of trust, well, then it may be inconsistent. But again, on this sort of thing, we've got to just let people trust that people will follow the Spirit of God. I've known people. I could never join the military and shoot somebody because someone told me to. But I've, 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 I've talked to people who have felt like God was calling them in the military, and I'm not in a position to question that. Well, think through the issues here. Uh, so they are going into this with their eyes wide open, but I don't think there's an inevitable contradiction in doing that. It is interesting to me that Jesus, in his very typical countercultural way, at one point in the gospel says about a Roman centurion. A centurion was a high-ranking officer who was over others in the Roman government, which is oppressing the Jews, and no Jews like these people. But Jesus says that at one point, never have I found such great faith as I find in this Roman centurion. He acknowledged his faith, and he didn't say, no, now you got to quit the army. He just sort of left that to himself. I don't know what that Roman centurion did after that, but there's no reason to think that he necessarily quit the army uh, right away. So those are kind of the, uh, that's the, the inevitable ambiguity that we live in when we're in the world but not of the world. we just got to think in terms of wearing two different hats. Question number two, and I received this one quite a bit with quite a bit of passion. Insofar as America stands for freedom, isn't America a Christian nation? Insofar as America stands for freedom, isn't America a Christian nation? And here we are getting at what I think is, I'm just going to shoot very straight, uh, what I think is one of the main causes for idolatrous patriotism in our culture. It's one of the main causes of the fusion of the kingdom of the world, our version of the kingdom of the world, with the kingdom of God. 
because we hold democracy and freedom up so high, as I think we ought, that some begin to think that it is sort of the distinctly Christian uh, gospel. And, and our enthusiasm, as it were, our, our enthusiasm for democracy uh, sucks us into a fusion of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. The passage I want us to think about as I address this particular issue is John chapter 8, where Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Let me say two preliminary words before I answer this, this uh, question. The first one is that I, as an American, believe that America does stand for freedom. So I accept the premise of the question. But as a kingdom of God person who never wants to get uncritical of the culture in which I live, I also have to be aware that two-thirds of the world would disagree with the premise of this question. They don't see America as standing for freedom. They see us as standing for a lot of other things that they don't like, uh, but they don't see us standing for freedom. Now, I'm American, and I believe we stand for freedom. Yeah, we're not perfect in all of that, but, but I, 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 I'm going to accept the premise of this question. Preliminary word number two is this, and I want to go on record loud and clear as saying this because I have been accused of being anti-American and communist and socialist and who knows what else. Um, everything but being an orangutan, and I suspect that's coming. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. I want you to know that I love democracy. I love p political freedom. I think it honors human beings. It, to that degree, reflects more of our being made in the image of God than other forms of, 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 of government. I appreciate the fact that I can choose my own livelihood, that I can believe my own beliefs, uh, that, I, that they ask my opinion every couple of years about how I think the government of the world uh, should operate. I, 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 I love that. I love that. And therefore, I love this country. And I am, and it's, it's, it's appropriate to say this on Memorial Day, I am personally thankful for all who have made sacrifices to give me and to give you that freedom. Amen. That's a good thing. Amen. But I believe we have to be careful precisely in our enthusiasm for that that we don't mistake this very positive good aspect of our version of the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God. The question really is this. Is political freedom, is democracy a distinctly Christian value? And some of you are maybe a little irritated that I would even question that, which just tells me perhaps how closely you fused our culture with the kingdom of God. Because I don't see anywhere in Scripture that it is a distinct kingdom value. It's a good kingdom of the world thing, but I don't see that democracy is a kingdom of God thing. If, if democracy, if political freedom is a kingdom of God thing, then why do we read nothing about it in the Bible? Why does Jesus never speak about it? In fact, in his culture, there were many, many people, as we've seen, who wanted Israel to be free from Roman uh, tyranny. They weren't thinking in terms of individual freedom. That's a re relatively new invention in world history. But they wanted political freedom, and they wanted to use Jesus' power to gain them their political freedom. And Jesus always uh, resisted that pull. If, if uh, democracy, if uh, political freedom is a distinct kingdom value, why is it not mentioned anywhere in the Bible? Why isn't it mentioned uh, in, in Jesus' ministry or anywhere else in the New Testament? In fact, if it's a distinct kingdom of God value, why is church history silent on this? In, in fact, 
Wherever Christians got in power, historically, up until the 18th and 19th century, and then even sometimes in the 18th and 19th century, wherever Christians got in power, you had one of the most tyrannical forms of government the world's ever seen. Few know this fact, but throughout the Middle Ages, Jews often prayed that the Muslims would conquer the Christians because they had more religious freedom living under the Muslims than they did the Christians. If, 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 if uh, political freedom is a distinct Christian value, why has it not only been absent in the church, but why has the church squashed it throughout history? In fact, when the idea of political freedom began to arise from a multitude of sources for a variety of reasons, the, the breakup of the feudal system in the late Renaissance period and post-Enlightenment thinking and a number of other things, largely from secular sources, gave this idea of, of individual freedom. And once that idea of individual freedom was born, we found the English Revolution and then the French Revolution and then later on the American Revolution. But you got to know that one of the main forces that resisted that move towards democracy was the Christian church. Calvin's, Calvin's rule in Geneva wasn't exactly a democracy. It was a theocracy. He was king. And uh, Luther thought it was absolutely ludicrous that you would ask peasants their opinions about how, how people should be ruled. The Christian church resisted democracy. So how can we say that it's a distinctly Christian value? Now that the idea has become popular and, and everyone in America loves it, all of a sudden the church is saying, oh, that's a distinctly Christian value. But we're jumping on the bandwagon a little bit late in the game. Throughout history, we haven't been for this at all. Now, again, I love freedom. I love democracy. I, I am absolutely for it. I think it's the best way to, to, to run the kingdom of the world but I see no reason to think that it's a distinct kingdom of God value. And I get a little bit irritated when, uh, when, 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 when that value, that kind of freedom, gets mixed up with the genuine kind of freedom that the kingdom of God is all about. Because there is a freedom that the kingdom of God is all about. The freedom that is distinct to the kingdom of God isn't about political freedom. It's a, it's a kind of freedom you could have if you're in a totalitarian system, if you're in a communist state, if, if you're thrown into prison, you've got chains all around you. The freedom that distinguishes the kingdom of God. It's not contingent upon who's in power and who's running the show. The freedom that the kingdom of God is about is much more profound than that. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And he's talking to people who are not politically free. But it doesn't matter, because they can be free because they know the truth. The truth of the kingdom of God is, uh, the freedom of the kingdom of God is a freedom that, it, it, the freedom of knowing who you are and knowing whose you are. It's the freedom of being saved by Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful freedom, and no law can give you that, no government can give you that, no set of rules can give you that. It's the freedom of knowing Jesus Christ. It's the freedom of knowing your unsurpassable and unconditional worth because of what God has done for you. It's the freedom to see the glory of God and the love of God and to dance with the triune God. The freedom that distinguishes the kingdom of God. It's infinitely superior to democracy, though I love democracy, but this is the freedom to be freed from condemnation, to know that your sins aren't held against you. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are cast from you. That's freedom. It's freedom from guilt. It's freedom from condemnation. It's the freedom of justification. It's the freedom to know where you're going. 
To know that you've you got an eternal destiny ahead of you and that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing and that that inheritance is imperishable. That, that is freedom. It's freedom from the fear of death. It's freedom from the fear of man. It's freedom from the fear of all the things that people mostly fear in this world. It's freedom not to have to try to be sucking to get life and worth from the things around you because you know you've got it in Jesus Christ. It's freedom to walk in the Holy Spirit. It's freedom to experience the love of God and the joy of God. It's the freedom to, to have strongholds in your life being broken. Ain't nobody can do that for you, but God can, and that's real freedom. That's the freedom that the kingdom of God preaches. And whenever, whenever we find politicians, as we're finding a lot of it, get a nose to sniff this out, who start quoting Bible verses to support their agenda, we ought to be the ones saying, uh-uh, no, no, you can't ride our coattails. And we're not going to ride their coattails either. We've got a distinct thing going on here. Uh, because, you see, despite what politicians may say, and they're saying this a lot these days, uh, democracy, as beautiful and good as it is, it is not the salvation of the world. Democracy, as good and as great as it is, it is not the light of the world. Democracy, as good and as great as it is, isn't the hope of the world. The light of the world and the hope of the world and the salvation of the world is found in Jesus Christ. And never forget that. Never forget that. Never forget that. This is why, this is why the message we preach and the message we live should look identical in America as it would if we were in Cambodia or the Soviet Union or China or whatever. And if you find that your behavior uh, as a kingdom person is different in America than what it would be if you were in China or whatever, then that is perhaps one indication that your thinking is too influenced by the culture you're a part of. You're not sufficiently not of this world. You're too much in the world. Live in the tension of it, but keep pure, keep holy, keep distinct. The not-of-this-world kingdom, which has a not-of-this-world kind of freedom to preach. Question number three, a very good one. What's the difference between turning the other cheek and letting yourself be abused? This was asked me by a lady who saw her mother stay in a relationship with her father that was incredibly abusive, and she did it because she was trying to model Jesus Christ for her daughter. In the name of being meek and humble, she let herself be battered. And I'm aware of the fact that probably statistically there's a significant number of battered women in particular, maybe some battered men, uh, maybe some battered children survivors here, and it's easy to get the gospel message confused with that sort of abuse. The passage I want us to think about here is Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus says that the greatest commandment is that you shall love your God with the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Lock this in. Everything Jesus was about was this love that he's talking about. The kingdom of God is synonymous with God's love. Calvary type of love. This love fulfills all the law and the prophets, he says in the next verse. It fulfills all that we're about. You get that out of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 4. So everything Jesus tells us is motivated by love. And love is about ascribing worth to another. Ascribing worth. That's what love is. Here Jesus tells us that our life is to be found in ascribing worth to God and in ascribing worth to others as to ourself. It presupposes that you're ascribing worth to yourself. And the motive is love. Now, when 
a person allows themselves to be abused by another person. Allowing them to do that is not loving towards them. You're not ascribing worth towards them because you're allowing them to go on in this sick, evil, dysfunctional behavior. And what God knows is that they're created for more than that. You're not doing them any favors by letting them carry out their sickness on you. You're not doing yourself any favors at all. You're not loving yourself. You're not ascribing worth to yourself by letting yourself be treated like a dirty rag. So you're not ascribing worth to them, the abuser. You're not ascribing worth to yourself, the abused. And you're certainly not ascribing worth to God who created both of you and saved both of you to have this unsurpassable worth. There's a world of difference, especially on the level of motivation between a believer who ascribes worth to another at cost to themselves. Out of love for God, for themselves, and for another, they come under another person. They serve another person. There's a world of difference between that and somebody who really doesn't think they have any worth, so they let somebody walk all over them. You can't call that Christian. You can't call that kingdom of God. That's actually something that comes from the pit. Now, it's not the kingdom of God to retaliate on the abuser either, to pick up the sword and start fighting him with the sword because now you're sinking down to their level and you're playing the tit-for-tat kingdom of the world. So we're not to return evil with evil, we're to return evil with good. But it's not good to let yourself be abused by them. What is the good, the kingdom good, that would be a response to a person who's walking all over you in one shape or another? The answer is, it depends on the situation, so you've got to ask God for wisdom in this, but it would look something like this. First of all, you ask the question, Lord, how, how can I respond to this person in a way that has the possibility of changing their heart, has the possibility of changing them on the inside? And secondly, you ask the question, if their heart's not being changed, Lord, what do I need to do to just stop this from happening? What needs to be in place so that this doesn't continue, so that at the very least... I'm not, to, I'm not enabling this person to carry out their sickness and get further entrenched in their sickness. And I'm not allowing this person to rob me of the worth that you created and saved me to have. What needs to be in place? And what may need to be in place, and this can be a kingdom of God thing, though outsiders may judge you for it, but it can be a kingdom of God thing to walk away from it. Sometimes the most loving thing to do if all else has failed is to walk away from it so that at least you're putting a stop to the worth detraction in your own life and the worth detraction in their life, and that can be an act of love. You ascribe worth to a person by saying, I'm not going to allow you to go on carrying out this sickness and demeaning your own worth by abusing me, which in the process demeans my worth. Sometimes in the kingdom of God, you put up walls to protect you from evil stuff. And that's got to happen. So there's a world of difference between a kingdom person doing what they do out of love and an unhealthy person allowing stuff to be done to them out of a, out of a, a, a lack of appreciation for the worth they have in Christ. Question number four. And this was the single most frequently asked question that I got. It is, I think, the strongest myth uh, on this issue in the church. It's this one. As people of God, aren't we called to stand against sin? On a social level, aren't we called to stand against sin? And I've addressed this several times in the, in the, in the course of this series, but I think it needs to be reiterated from a different direction. I want us to re read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we're answering this question. Love is patient, Paul says. Love is kind, Paul says. Love is not rude, Paul says. It does not insist on its own way. And everything we're to be about is love. I'll start at the beginning here. 
First, it is very clear in Scripture that we are to take a stand against sin. We are not to be involved in cheap grace. But everything hangs upon where and how you think you're supposed to take a stand against sin. Here's what the New Testament says about taking a stand against sin. Number one, take a stand against sin in your own life. As we walk with God and as he convicts us, we're to be trying to pull the tree trunks out of our own lives. And as long as there's anything in our own lives, as long as there's sin in our own life, we're to treat that as tree trunks, consider other people's sin to be mere dust particles, and our main job in life is to be walking in conformity with Jesus Christ. And I suspect that for most of us, that's a lifetime project. We're to take a stand against sin in our own life, know the areas of our own life that are not in conformity with Jesus Christ, and work on them. Now, secondly, as we work on them, there is a social role we play in taking a stand against sin. Paul says that we're to encourage one another, hold one another accountable, uh, speak the truth to one another in love, and things of that sort. Now, when Paul's writing, we've got to know this. The, in the early church, the church met in houses, in, in, in individual houses. The average congregation couldn't have been much more than 20 or 30 people. Often they'd meet every morning of the week in a hostile environment. They needed each other. They were bound close together. They invited each other in on their life as fellow believers, saying, will you walk with me on this issue? And in that context, it is a loving thing and a wise thing to hold one another accountable. You've invited people to hold you accountable. They've invited you to hold them accountable. And together, you help take tree trunks out of each other's eyes. You stand against sin by taking a stand for your brother and sister. You, 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 you tell them what you notice, maybe areas of their life where, where things are, are becoming frayed and, and they're getting off the path. That's the biblical concept of accountability, of taking a stand against sin. But nowhere in the New Testament... Not in Jesus' ministry or in Paul do you find the idea that the church's job as a church, what you do wearing the hat of the in-the-world culture is one thing. But as a church, nowhere is there any idea that we are supposed to hold the culture accountable for their sin. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What have I to do, he says, with judging those outside, outside the church? And the obvious answer is absolutely nothing. God will judge those outside the church. His job is to help people walk in conformity with Christ, but that presupposes they've got to regenerate inside. Until that's there, trying to get people to look like they're more in conformity with Jesus Christ isn't doing them any favors. So Paul leaves the world to the world. He says God will take care of them. Our job is, that, is to grow as kingdom people. When we mistakenly begin to position ourselves as the professional, morally superior, sin-pointer-outers of the world, we are at the very least rude because we're going places where we haven't been invited. And love is not rude. When we position ourselves as the moral, morally superior, sin-pointer-outers of the culture, we end up gaining a reputation for ourselves, a well-deserved reputation for ourselves, as being self-righteous, rude, pompous, hypocritical people who think that they can point out sins in other people's eyes. Uh, we end up violating Matthew 17 because now we think it's our professional job as the superior people to find specks when in fact we've got two-by-fours coming out of our own eyes and everybody on the planet can see it except us. And now, amen. And now instead of leaving the one reputation, the one reputation God calls us to leave, 
the reputation for looking like Jesus Christ, for having this absolutely shocking, outrageous, power under kind of love in our life. Instead of having that reputation, we have the reputation that looks a whole lot more like the Pharisees in the first century. Whenever we position ourselves as the professional sin pointers, outers, the morally superior people in the culture, we're always selective. We're always self-serving. Always. It's just like with the Pharisees. We eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the very essence of sin, and we proclaim it as though it was salvation, and we end up just creating another religious version of the kingdom of this world. We're always self-selective, but we don't know that because it's so instinctive to us. Uh, several weeks ago, I had a precious lady, a precious lady come up, and, and uh, she was just visiting the church, and so she hadn't heard the whole series, but she, she had a concern, and her concern was this. She goes, uh, you know, aren't we uh, supposed to uh, protect society? And because we know the truth, aren't we supposed to speak the truth in love to everybody and point out you know, that there's sins there and do what we can to outlaw that, that sin? And more specifically, she said, uh, shouldn't the church as a church, again, what you do when you're wearing the hat of a participant in this kingdom of the world, I don't care about. But as a church, as a believer representing the kingdom of God, shouldn't we, she thought, Shouldn't we be uh, trying to outlaw this, the gay marriage thing because society's decaying and this is going to hurt people? And I don't usually operate like this, but I felt a compulsion of the Lord. I, 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 I think it was from the Lord. I said to her, please stop me if, if you ever feel like I'm being rude, but, but is, this is just you talking to me sinner to sinner, so I want to ask you a question if I could. Are you divorced and remarried? And she kind of looked back at me. She goes, well, as a matter of fact, I am. I said, okay, we're just talking out loud here. Um, uh, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? And of course, Jesus spoke about that, and it's a break from God's ideal. God's ideal is for every human being to have one sexually, sexual partner throughout most of their life, uh, for, throughout all of their life. <laughs> okay, okay, when you're 99, then you get to splurge, you know. <laughs> How's that? One, God's ideal in Genesis 2 is to have one sexual partner throughout, throughout your life. And anything that is different than that is to that degree sin. In fact, Jesus calls it adultery. Uh, and then I asked her, well, what does Jesus speak more on? Divorce and remarriage or, or uh, homosexuality? And she wasn't sure, but I told her that, that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality, but he spoke quite a bit about divorce and remarriage. And not to condemn those who are remarried, but just to make it known that don't think that you're righteous for getting remarried for specific reasons as opposed to other reasons. But, but he certainly called it adultery. And then I asked her, what do you think is more common in our culture? Uh, people who are divorced and remarried or, or gay people? And of course, the answer is uh, people who are divorced and remarried are far more common than gay people. And nowhere is that more true than in the Christian church, which has a higher, the highest rate of divorce on the planet. So I asked her the question, uh, why, why if, we're inter if we want to hold up the sanctity of marriage, why don't we go after that one? And in fact, 20, 30 years ago, there were groups of people, Christians, who wanted to go after that one and outlaw remarriage. Would you have appreciated that if they would do that? Would you want to go to church if they had done that? And the answer, of course, was, was no. And then I responded to her this way, and I could see that there was a reframe going on. 
then why is it that we're just going to go after this one group of people and not after divorce or remarriage? But the real question is not this. It's not why don't we go after your particular sin? Why don't we go after my particular sin? Because I'm the one with the tree trunks in my eyes right now. And the sin that I have is the most frequently one mentioned in the Bible and it's the one that is most characteristic of the church. And that's the sin of greed, mentioned more than any of these other sins. Uh, and if, if you want to make a case... If you can't make a case that there's any particular sin that destroys society and destroys people, you can connect the dots on this one. Uh, greed leads to the starvation of millions and millions of people on this planet. Why don't we go after that one? Uh, now, I have a suspicion why we don't. If you're going to play this power over game, why not go after that one? And my suspicion is that a good percentage of the people in North America in churches are guilty of this one, as I believe I am. And uh, a good percentage of people in, in the, the church, more so than the rest of the world, are divorced and remarried. So it just wouldn't be very convenient to go after one of those two. But gay people, well, we've already scared all of them away, and so they make a nice target. They're out there, they're vulnerable, so they've always been one of the favorite scapegoats of Christians throughout the centuries. And back in the good old days, we could just burn them alive, but now we can at least make their life miserable. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? You see, when we go off in this, other people see the, the, the hypocrisy of it all, but we tend to not see it. Nowhere does Jesus go about doing that, trying to fix people from the outside. What he does is he takes a strong stand against sin. And as kingdom people, we're called to imitate him. And how does Jesus take a strong stand against sin? He goes to the cross and he dies for sinners. He goes to the cross and he dies for sinners. He befriends them throughout his ministry and then he dies for them. You want to talk about taking a strong stand against sin. He goes to the cross and absorbs on himself the sin of the world. He became sin for our sake that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, when, when out of love you serve sinners, now you're taking a stand against sin in a way that might actually work in a unique kingdom of God kind of way. When was the last time you went up to a stranger and said, hey, by the way, what you're doing is sin, and it actually made any difference to them? Think about it. Who are you? You don't know me. You don't know squat. You're just kind of self-righteous, aren't you? And now, if anything, you lock them in on that sin. Now they get hardened in it. You haven't done them a favor at all. You've worsened the situation. But when we come under people, when we just love them as they are, when we don't play the moral police game, when we don't do the background checks, when we just love people as they are, when we serve them in every way, shape, and form that we can, now we're planting a kingdom seed that could begin to, to have, have, have growth in their inner life and change the inside of a person. And until you change the inside of a person, you have not really changed the person at all. You've just dressed them up a little bit. When you love somebody, you change the way they look at God and the way they look at the world, the way they look at themselves. And now the kingdom, the kingdom of God God begins to grow. You want to take a hard stand against sin? Here's my recommendation. Find the people group that you find most despicable, most deplorable, most ungodly, and most destructive to society and commit three years of your life not to comment on it, but just to serve them. Just come under them. Just love them. Just hold them up. Take out their garbage. Mow their lawn. Amen. You do a world more good for the prostitute when you wash her feet than when you holler at her. The one will just send her deeper into the prostitution. The other one has a chance of actually changing her world. <sighs> Number five. And I've got to wrap this. This one's going to be kind of quick. Um, okay. <laughs> Are you saying the church is politically irrelevant? Some people have thought I have been saying that. Is the church politically irrelevant? Here's two passages that don't look like they have a bearing on this question, but they actually have a profound bearing on this question. 
Mark chapter 2, it says, When the scribes and Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What kind of a wacko rabbi are you following? Luke chapter 7, Jesus said this, The Son of Man has come, and you're all saying, all you religious folks, Look, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of, of, of uh, uh, tax collectors and sinners. Jesus did not have a very good reputation with the religious people who got life from their religiosity, but he was a friend of tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Now, let me answer the question, is the church uh, uh, politically irrelevant, given this radical distinction between these two kingdoms? The question presupposes that the only way to be politically relevant is by playing the political game, and I altogether reject that assumption. There's a way of being profoundly politically relevant without buying into the terms of the world on how to be politically relevant. I don't think the church should ever try to be politically relevant. The church should try to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to be the kingdom of God. But when we are the kingdom of God, I submit to you, it will always be profoundly politically relevant. Not on the terms of the world, but on the terms of the kingdom of God. Our job is to follow our captain, to imitate him, to do nothing more or less than what he did. So how was he politically relevant? And by the way, a profound book on this is written by a man named John Yoder, Y-O-D-E-R, and it's called The Politics of Jesus, where he shows that everything Jesus did was profoundly politically relevant, but in a most unusual way. By providing counterexamples to all the options of the world, he made an incredible statement about all the options of this world. It's a scholarly book. It's not an easy read, but I encourage you to check on Amazon.com if you're interested in finding out more about this and, and look it up. How was Jesus relevant? Two things. Number one, he prayed a lot. He prayed a lot. He gave us an example to follow. He prayed a lot. And the New Testament tells us that we are to be people who pray for our leaders, pray for peace, pray for your country. We're to pray for the culture that's around us. Now, maybe someone here is thinking, oh, there he goes, over-spiritualizing things, and, and you know, we all know that doesn't do much good. But see, that just, that just shows how much trust you have in power over rather than the power under service of prayer. The Bible tells us that one of the unique places of authority, probably the greatest place of authority that we have is in prayer. As kingdom people, we, God's wired it so that when we call upon him, stuff gets activated from heaven that has an impact on this world that otherwise never would be impacted. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. You want to be socially active, fine, but one of the ways you do it as a kingdom of God person is by praying for the culture around you. And, and to release power from heaven that affects change in this world. Don't underestimate the value of prayer. I can show you examples in Scripture where nations were spared because people prayed. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, it says in 2 Chronicles 7, then will they hear from heaven and then will I heal their land. If they pray. I can also show you passages of Scripture where because people didn't pray, a nation fell apart and was judged. Let me give you one example of that. Ezekiel chapter 22, Ezekiel tells or the Lord tells Ezekiel, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. The people of the land have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the alien without redress. And our ears should be fine-tuned at this point because this is pretty, hitting pretty close to home to America. He says, And I sought for anyone, anyone among them who would repair the wall and stand in the breach before me on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. 
And therefore, therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. Woe. Do we believe that? Do we believe that, in fact, if God could have found one person to stand in the gap, to do intercession on behalf of the land, that nation would have been spared? Don't tell me that there's not power in prayer. Don't tell me that prayer doesn't affect things. Prayer is a form of social activism. What if it's actually true, folks, that whether or not this nation decays doesn't have anything to do with the laws that are or are not passed? What if the burden of responsibility is on whether or not the children of God are praying? Uh, think about that. Uh, what if it really rests on us? Uh, trust in the power of prayer. It, it, when you pray, you're coming under people. You're coming under the nation. You're serving them by using your unique authority as a kingdom of God person to change what happens in this world. Prayer is one form that we are extremely politically relevant. A second way is this. We mimic what Jesus did. And as John Yoder shows, Jesus was always politically relevant in an anti-political kind of a way. And we are to follow his example. Yoder shows that Jesus made a profound comment about societal prejudice and patriarchalism by the way he treated women. The society said that women were basically property of men, but Jesus treated them with incredible respect. And, and wherever he went, they followed. And, and that itself was turning the light on the evil of societal prejudice. Jesus made an incredible comment about the evil of certain social taboos when he went around touching lepers out of love. He made a comment about certain, the injustice of certain religious laws when he would heal people on the Sabbath. He made an incredible comment on the, racial, on the evil of racial prejudice in his culture, by the way he fellowshiped with Samaritans, even Samaritan women. And most importantly, he made an incredible comment about the barbarism of the Roman government and all versions of the kingdom of this world by allowing them to crucify him. He turned light on things that otherwise wouldn't have light turned on them. He exposed the evil of the structural system he was a part of by providing a countercultural alternative to it. Sadly, the church of North America knows next to nothing about this because we've never tried it really because we've been so busy trying to polish up our own religious version of the, of, of the world, the kingdom of the world. But I submit to you it's time for kingdom people just to lock in on the one job that we have and that's to imitate Jesus. And that is politically relevant. Wherever you do the kingdom of God, it's obvious. It, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see it because there's not many people in the world who are doing this. Loving for the sake of love at cost to yourself. When, when a congregation decides to adopt an inner-city school, they go around fixing up inner-city schools just because they love inner-city schools, that gets noticed. That has repercussions. It turns a light on to the fact that the government's not doing this. Either they don't have a mon enough money for it or they don't care about it enough. We're turning a light on their, this. We're saying, here's an issue, and we're going to do something about this issue. Watch. And now Jesus Christ gets the glory for it instead of Uncle Sam. It has political repercussions. In fact, I'll tell you this. What, what, what uh, Woodland Hills did several weeks ago at the Ames School has already, I'm told, uh, been having repercussions in the political realm. It had, the ripple effect uh, goes, goes in all places, including in the realm of politics. And when a people of God really takes seriously the one humanity that Jesus died for to tear down the walls and we begin to manifest racial reconciliation, when whites begin to enter into solidarity, setting aside the privilege they have in a white-dominated culture, to enter into solidarity with African Americans and Native Americans, Latinos and other non-white people groups, people notice that kind of thing. When we manifest the beauty of the kingdom of God, when we can live out racial reconciliation, that sheds a light on the structure of society that's not 
doing that. It's, it exposes by the virtue of its, its loveliness, it exposes the evils and the, the prejudice of the structure around us, and that has implications, that has ramifications. And when the people of God take up the cause, uh, which is throughout the Bible, of the poor and the needy and the helpless and, and those in prison and those addicted on, on drugs and those marginalized by the society and those being crushed by the power of a system, when the church does that, it gets noticed. It has ramifications on all levels. It has even a political impact to it. Can't help but be noticed. There's not a whole lot of that going along. When we, when we for example, take on the issue of homelessness and, and work together and sacrifice together to provide jobs for these folks so they can actually live and provide affordable housing for, the, for, for, for these folks, that sheds a light on what the government is not doing. And now Jesus Christ gets glorified. And maybe the government will shape up a little bit and they'll start doing stuff. What we do as the kingdom of God has tremendous ramifications. I believe, to the core of my being, that if the church as a whole in North America... Uh, ever, and I'll just think about North America here. If we ever got our act together and began to act like one church and instead of doing a religious version of the kingdom of the world, began to actually do the kingdom of God, imitate Jesus Christ individually and collectively, it would have an impact that we can't begin to imagine. If the church as a whole took up the cause of the disenfranchised, took up the cause of the poor, took up the cause of the homeless, took up the cause of those who suffer under racial prejudice, took up the cause of, of those who are most easily forgotten in this world. If the church as a whole did that and did it in a distinctly kingdom of God kind of a way, we just served radically. We just came under these people. We washed their feet. We, we walked with them in life. That would get noticed and that would have an explosion of power, both in the lives of the people we're serving, but even in the political structure around us. Amen. But to ever get there, we got to quit trying to be a religious version of the world. I, I, I don't have, honestly, between you and me, I don't have a lot of hope that the church in North America is going to do that in the near future. I think it's way too addicted to a religious version of the kingdom of this world. But that's not my problem. That's, that, that's God's problem. And I am gotten very good at just leaving to God what's God's problem. I can't do anything about that. But I can do something about this. This is what we're going to do. The, 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 uh, we take responsibility for the slice of the world that God's given to us. And I want us to be a unique, radically peculiar, distinct kingdom of God type of people who individually and collectively live out in purity the kingdom of God and make an impact in the world around us. The Bible says, be ye a peculiar people. Come out from among them. Be ye separate. And a lot of us from our backgrounds thought that that meant you don't smoke and don't go dancing and don't go to movies. But I suggest to you it's far, 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 far more profound than that. It's about lifestyle. Live in love. Radical love. Washing the feet of the culture around you. That's the kingdom of God. Would you close your eyes to pray? I'm just going to give us a benediction here. If you're here this morning and you want to sign away your life and join this radical kingdom that I've been talking about and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, I invite you as we're dismissed to come up to my right and your left, left up front here uh, these people would be glad to explain to you how simple that is and get you started in living out the life of a kingdom person. If you have any needs here this morning that you need to have prayed for, our prayer teams will be up here and you're invited to come forward and be prayed for. But fathers, we leave this place, our prayer together is that you motivate us, inspire us, and transform us to be your kingdom people. Help us to see the multitude of kingdom opportunities around us every day. Help us to wisely make decisions about where and when and to who we should sacrifice.
to ascribe worth. And help us individually and collectively as this body to manifest your love, the dome in which you are king, to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time, amen. Amen. Go out. Do the kingdom. We love you.